Jonah chapter 3. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn there, I'll briefly introduce the text as you hasten over to Jonah chapter 3. It's in the Minor Prophets. If you can't find it, then just find Matthew and begin to turn backwards. It's four very short chapters. We concluded last week with God's great fish vomiting his minor prophet onto dry land. Jonah rebelled against God's command to go to the city of Nineveh and God rescued him from death at the bottom of the sea in order to get him back on God's mission to Nineveh, the great city, that great city it is repeatedly called in Jonah. And in chapter 3 we learn some lessons about our great missionary God. You see, Jonah has been saved in chapter 2. He's been rescued. He's gone to the depths of the sea. He's gone down to Sheol where the earth with its bars were over him forever, we are told in verse 5 of chapter 2. He's been delivered. He's been rescued from a state of rebellion, re-enlisted in God's plan, his program, and his purposes. And the question that chapter 3 answers for us is why is it that God rescues people? Why does he rescue us? Who is it for? Would you consider with me now God's word from Jonah chapter 3? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh the great city and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. It's one of the most amazing sentences in scripture. The most wicked people on the planet received a five-word sermon in the Hebrew text, and the text tells us, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, flock, taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let them call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who is full of grace and mercy and pity upon those of us who are sinners who seek your salvation. We thank you, God, that you made a way not only for us to be saved, but for the nations to know of your great name and to find that when they repent of their sin, when they truly turn from their wicked way, 
that they find a father ready to receive them and make them your very own. Jesus, we give you all the praise and thanksgiving for who, for who you are and for what you are purposing to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are we going to do now that we've been vomited onto dry land? What are we going to do now that we have been brought from the depths of the sea, raised up in Christ, delivered onto the dry land? What now? I submit to you that Jonah 3 shows us that God still wants the hearts of our enemies, that our rebellion cannot undo the heart of God to use us to save others. And so for us to glorify God with the new life that he has given us, he's delivered us from death into a new life. What are we now to do with that life? There's four things. First, we must understand God's second chance is for his gospel's advance. God's second chance is for the advance of the gospel. Secondly, we must value God's mission as God values his mission. Thirdly, we must share God's message with our enemies. And finally, we must hope our enemies will repent and receive God's mercy. First, to glorify God with the new life that he gives those who turn to Christ and cry to him for deliverance, we must first understand God's second chance is always about the gospel's advance. Jonah had been thrown overboard in a supernatural storm. He went to Sheol and was saved by a great fish. If that isn't the makings of a Hollywood film, I don't know what is. I wish I could have been Jonah's publicist. Jonah, you're messing this all up. What are you doing going to Nineveh? You've got a story to tell about yourselves. I mean, you could be on the Israeli bestseller list. You, you could have given, he could have had a speech called How to Stop Floundering Around and Get Somewhere. He'd have filled up stadiums. Come, come hear Jonah. Come see Jonah. But do you notice that Jonah's salvation is not primarily about Jonah? Don't we do that in our lives? I, I was this and now I'm that. And yes, it's good that we have personal testimonies. But if we stop on the personal testimony and all we can talk about is ourselves and not give back to the God who gave himself for us, then we've missed the point of the reason God saved us in the first place. God does not save us primarily for us. He saves us for the nations who still do not yet know him. It's a little bit of a paradigm shift. But... I want to speak to our student ministry just for a moment. This is something I wish I'd have realized decades ago. That God saved me for the world. God saved me to be a conduit of his grace to the people who haven't yet received his grace. Rick Warren simply states it like this. It's not about you. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins like the very first verse of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Philip Carey writes, It all starts again, just as before, with the very same words we read at the beginning, except for the added phrase reminding us it is the second time. Aren't you glad that God will give his word a second time? Aren't you glad that we serve the God of the second chance? God's command is to arise and go. It's the very same command that we got at the beginning of the book. And he is to go with the message that God would give him, the word of the Lord. Verse 1, 
Notice that God's word throughout the book of Jonah always comes to Jonah, never directly to the pagan sailors or to the Ninevites. God's word always comes through his appointed prophet, through the conduit of his word. And in today's world, now that Christ has come and we have the completed scriptures, we are the conduit, North Roanoke Baptist Church. The local church is the conduit through which God has purposed to give the nations his word. We are the community who understands what it is to have a second chance. We're the ones who've received God's word and there is no salvation for the world apart from God revealing himself to us in his word. Now get this, God's word creates the church, it is given to the church for the extension of the church until there's nothing but the church. Our mission is not complete until every nation hears, every tribe, every tongue, every language is ready to bow when the maker comes and they can say Christ is indeed my king. Jonah's rebellion hasn't changed God's mission. A lot of times we think, well, I can just rebel for a long time and then come back to God at the last minute, and then he's just going to say, well, you can do something else because of all of that history of rebellion. No, 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 no. God saves us for his mission, period. Now, the application of that might be different for different occupations. You might be a, called to be a mom for a season of life. You might be called to be a firefighter or a policeman or a teacher or any variety of things. But ultimately, God has rescued us for the purpose of his mission. When God delivers us from death, he delivers us to a life on mission. John Piper has famously said, missions exist because worship does not. As long as there are people in places where the right worship of the one true God is lacking, we have the responsibility of rep reproducing ourselves among people who do not yet know our great God. That's why I'm so excited that Daryl and Susan are back and they're going to join us in this work of helping new believers who walk an aisle, who come into my office or another staff member's office and give their life to Jesus. How is it that they make the transition from giving their life to Christ to being a self-feeding Christian in a Sunday school class or a small group and all the ways that we help people grow in the faith. Well, Daryl and Susan, praise the Lord, they've agreed to help us make that connection. We've been saved for mission because we worship the God who alone is worthy of the worship of all peoples. What does that mean for us, North Roanoke? It means that missions is not something that's added to the church relegated to a special offering at the end of the year. No, no, the church, the health and the replication of this church to the ends of the earth is the mission that we've been saved to. It is the reason for which we gather on Sunday and scatter throughout the week. We are a community who's been given a second chance. And I dare say, many of us can say amen. We've been given a third and a fourth and a fifth and a maybe even a tenth chance whatever opportunity you've been given by Christ it's been given for the purpose of the gospel's advance secondly to glorify God with this new life that we've received in Christ we must value God's mission as God values his mission Jonah finally understands that God is serious. We know this because he gives God his complete obedience. He doesn't get up and leave Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. 
He goes into the face of his enemies. And he goes according to the word of the Lord. Obedience is always in accordance with God's word. God says, get up and go in verse 2. Verse 3, Jonah gets up and he goes to Nineveh. And he goes, interestingly enough, a three days walk around the city or through the city. Once again, God is reminding us that salvation comes at the end of three days, although Jonah only journeys about a day or a day and a half into the heart of the city and preaches his message. In verse 3, most translations refer to the size of the city of Nineveh. They say something like this. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. But the Hebrew text literally reads, Now Nineveh was a great city to God. Did you hear that? Nineveh, the Isis of Jonah's day, the heart of the capital city of the most wicked people on the planet during Jonah's day, was a great city to God. This is more than a description of Nineveh's size. It also suggests, according to Philip Carey, that somehow a big thing is Nineveh in God's eyes. Nineveh is something that matters a great deal to him. Let me ask you a question. What if the world's cities of our day matter as much to God as our children and our grandchildren matter to us? What if God has said, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, as he did say in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. What if we could see our enemies this morning as God sees them, as those for whom Christ has died, as those who have a desperate need to hear of God's great love for their great city? Nineveh was a great city to God. What will we do, North Roanoke Baptist Church, about the great cities in our day? What will we even do about the greater Roanoke Valley? To glorify God with the life He's given us, we must value God's mission as God does. But thirdly, to glorify God... With this new life that we've received in Christ, we must share God's message with our enemies. Jonah's sermon is just five Hebrew words. It's a few more than that in the English language in the translation, but in the Hebrew, it's five words. With five words, Jonah preaches the gospel, but he does still use words. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but uh, I've heard people say, I want to preach the gospel and if necessary, use words or We may be the only Bible that someone ever sees, and so I'm just going to show them the gospel. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's important to show people the gospel. It's important to do good deeds and to love people in practical ways in Jesus' name. But there's no such thing as sharing the gospel without words. Gospel means good news. You, You can't have news without words. We've been given the word of God, which tells us of God's certain judgment and his, the opportunity of his salvation to say, I'm going to give somebody the gospel, but not use words. is like saying, can I have your phone number, but don't use digits. You got to have the word. And Jonah goes and he preaches the gospel again, only in five Hebrew words. And perhaps one day I will preach a sermon using just five English words. Okay. That's not going to happen. 
<clears throat> On the surface, it appears that Jonah is leaving out the good news. That he's trying to skirt by the fact that there's a gracious and compassionate God. And in chapter 4, which we'll consider next week, we know why he does that. Because he doesn't want God to save Nineveh. But, but he can't help himself. There's, there's salvation mixed in this message of judgment. The word overthrown is the same word used of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a famous biblical term that means serious judgment from God. However, overthrow can mean not only to overthrow and destroy, but also to turn over, turn around, or turn one thing into another, as it does when God turns Balaam's curse against Israel into blessing. Philip Carey says, this word, Jonah's word, is a word of salvation that looks like destruction. Alexander adds this, the use of the word overthrown is hardly accidental. Although Nineveh was not overturned, Nineveh does experience a turn around. You see, Christ, through Christ, the dead are made alive. Those who are in darkness enter into his glorious light. And even though Jonah is trying to hide the opportunity for God's salvation, he knew what God could do. And he gave the Ninevites just enough opportunity to have hope. Do you notice the words, yet 40 days. We see the number 40 throughout the text of Scripture. The number 40 indicates a time of trial or testing that ultimately results in or leads to holiness, renewal, homecoming, and salvation. Noah is delivered, but not until the flood comes upon the earth for 40 days. The Israelites enter the promised land, but not until they are in the wilderness for 40 years, representing the 40 days that they spied out the land and failed to go into it. The Israelites are delivered from slavery after 400 years in Egypt. Jesus is victorious over temptation after 40 days in the wilderness. The use of 40 days catches our attention and it suggests that something isn't quite as it seems. Though Jonah says you're going to be judged, we see 40 days and we think, isn't it after 40 days that God typically grants his salvation? Yes, to be sure, the threat of divine judgment against sin is real. It is very, very real. Every single enemy of God, every single person who still has their sin on themselves and has their sin standing between them and a holy God faces God's certain judgment unless. Unless he's overturned by God. Uh, unless he or she becomes a new man or woman in Christ who was turned over to death for our sake, that we might through his death become sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we might become his children. Though Jonah reluctantly shares the message, he nevertheless, in five words, shares both the, the certainty of judgment for those who don't repent and the promise of salvation who are turned over by God. And he tells this story, by the way, I've been learning something in Jonah that I, that I had not seen before during my study this week. The only reason we have this story is because Jonah either told it on himself or he wrote it against himself. And what he's saying is, learn from my experience. And what he wants us to learn from his experience and his reluctance to share the gospel is that we must share the gospel. 
that God has commissioned us and deployed us as those who have his word to share the gospel with our enemies. And finally, we must expect our enemies will truly repent and receive God's mercy. When I was making out the notes for your bulletin guide, I said we must hope that our enemies will truly repent and receive God's mercy, but between Thursday morning and Saturday night, God showed me something. When you get to chapter 4, Jonah knew what God was going to do. He knew that if the enemies of the God heard of the hope of a God who would save them, that they would repent. Now, now, I'm convinced and I'm concerned that in the church in America, we've, we've given up hope. We think that if we take the gospel because we tried to share it in our workplace or we tried to share it with a family member and they rejected the gospel, that somehow that means that the gospel is being rejected everywhere. But Jonah writes us this book to say, no, no, no. The gospel is going forth in power. People are being overturned. They're being changed by the gospel. They're receiving the good news. And the very people that you're watching on Fox and CNN and saying, I can't stand those people. I can't believe they're doing that. It's those people that God sent the gospel for. And when it actually gets out of our mouths into their communities, it overturns people for good. So we don't just need to hope our enemies will repent and receive God's mercy. When we get out there and actually share it, we need to go with an expectation that the God who sent his son to redeem and reconcile and restore the world to himself, that he's going to do what he sent the gospel to do. Are you all here this morning? Is this on? Do you understand what I'm saying? Have we not grown cold to the gospel? Have we not become lethargic? with the gospel. The gospel goes forth in power when we take it to our enemies. It changes neighborhoods and families and communities. And it starts with the church that understands she's been given the gospel to give it away to even the people that we would write off were it not for Christ. In verse 5, we learn The people of Nineveh believed in God. How did they believe in God? They believed in God's word that is given through God's prophet. There's much speculation about why it is that the people believed so quickly, but that's not Jonah's point. It doesn't matter why they believed so quickly. That they believed at all is the miracle. Jonah wants us to know that God's grace overcame even the wickedness of wicked Nineveh. Even Nineveh believed in God. If Nineveh can believe in God, anybody can believe in God. Alexander adds, to believe in denotes more than just believing what someone said. They didn't just believe the words that they heard. They believed in the person to whom the words pointed. They placed all their faith, all their hope, all their trust into the God who was delivering the message. This is what God wants from us, our belief in him. That no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter what circumstances we've probably placed ourselves in, that God is worthy of our trust and he will deliver us. Why? Because the one who was thrown to death was buried for three days and emerged to give us the gospel has been raised and seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for all those who trust in him. Is this not the apostle's message? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we hear in Acts chapter 16, and you will be saved. 
when the king learns that they've called to fast and put on sackcloth, he follows suit. He makes it official policy. He amplifies their efforts. Jonah drills down into the life of the king to show us that true belief in God comes when we call on him earnestly and turn from our wickedness. Verse 8. Like the captain of the pagan sailors in verse 6 of chapter 1, the king hopes they won't perish. He hopes that God will turn from his burning anger against their sin and their violence and their wickedness. The word burning anger literally means the burning of God's nostrils. They understand that God, he would be right to consume them in the fiery wrath that he has against sin, but they don't want to perish. The desire not to perish is the universal desire of the nations. And as Carrie writes, the desire not to perish schools us in the love of God. There's a world out there that knows that they are dying in sin and violence and wickedness, but they don't know the God to whom they can turn and deliver them. In verse 10, when we read that God relented or repented of his burning anger, we should not think that God has somehow changed his mind. Jonah writes of God's activity from man's perspective. It's called an anthropomorphism. When we turn from sin, it seems that God has changed because we instantly move from the condemnation of God against our sin to communion with God because he removed our sin sin. It's not God who has changed when we turn to God, but it is us who have been changed by God. Jeremiah tells us that we should expect this behavior from God. In verse 7 and 8 of chapter 18, he says, God declares, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up or pull it down or destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I thought to bring upon it. God's promise of judgment is always conditional if you don't repent. But even the promise of God's judgment is intended as a means of His grace to drive you into the loving arms of a father who sent His Son to die for you. As Augustine writes, unlike human beings, God does not regret or repent of anything He does. His view is absolutely fixed of everything, just as his foreknowledge is certain. But if the Bible didn't use words like these, like turn or repent or change, it could not communicate so plainly to all the kinds of people it wants to reach, frightening the proud, stirring up the lazy, encouraging those who seek, and feeding those who understand, he wrote in the city of God. Philip Carey says it a a bit more succinctly, The explanation for the apparent change of mind is the unchanging character of God. A God who is always eager to spare those who turn from sin and run to Him. The explanation of God's turning toward us is really found in our turning away from sin. There's three important truths I want us to catch in closing this morning about repentance or turning away from our sin. Repentance is the conduit through which we turn away from our old self, our old attitudes, our old behaviors, and we indicate our complete reliance upon a holy God. 
First, repentance begins with an earnest, earnest call of desperation to God. In verse 8, the word earnestly means mightily, heartily, that, that they put everything they had into the cry out to God. They didn't put their confidence in behavior modification. Well, I'm just going to stop doing bad and start doing good. No, no, no. They cried out to God for His deliverance. Their hope was in God, the God in whom they believed, verse 5. Secondly, repentance is accompanied by evidences of humility. This is a critical point. Real repentance is accompanied by real evidences of humility. It's not just saying a prayer, reciting a verse, and saying, everything's great. Now we're just going to move on. Repentance is accompanied by the understanding that someone has truly offended a holy God. Calling a fast, putting on sackcloth, sitting in ashes, these were a common way to indicate grief and humility and penance. They were the hallmarks of true repentance. This is no normal act of humility, however. Notice that the king even asked them to fast from water. One commentator said, the king's proclamation gets drastic and radical. He even orders sackcloth to be put on the herds and the flocks. Can you imagine the Chick-fil-A cow with sackcloth on? <laughs> I mean, they got sackcloth. At which it, What is sackcloth, Daniel? It's cloth made from a sack. It's, it's not comfortable. It's, it's the raw, rugged, if you've ever seen twine, it's like wearing a garment made out of twine. It's not real comfortable. They even put it on the cows and the sheep and the goats. Why does he do this? He does it because he believes, rightly, by the way, that God's material blessings can also bring, be a way that he brings his judgment. He understands as king that it's more than just the wickedness of every individual, but that the whole society has been wrong, has been sinful, their economy, their way of life, their violence against others, that it's all been wicked and that they desire, they, they deserve rather to be consumed just like Sodom and Gomorrah, not just the people, the entire city and God, the, the king rather, puts sackcloth on the, the economic engine, the agricultural engine of the city to say, God, please don't just spare us. Spare our way of living. Be kind and generous to us. We do not deserve your goodness in our life. Repentance always comes with true indicators of humility. Let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you humbled yourself and repented of something? Are you married this morning? I mean, can you really go more than a month without needing to repent of something? Are you a parent this morning? You ever lost your temper? Ever gotten a little hot under the collar? But what do we do as believers? We, we think back to that time when we were saved way back then, and then we run right back to a system of works where we say, well, I know I did wrong there, but if I, if I do five good things toward my kid to make up for the 
time that I lost my temper this morning and don't ever acknowledge the elephant in the room and repent of my sin and humble myself, then everything's going to be okay. And then you know what we end up with in the Christian life? We end up with a stack of stuff that we never repented of and received the indwelling of the Spirit. Yes, He's there, but the the covering of the Spirit, the, the freeness and the fullness that comes when we know that God has forgiven us of that sin, we are in right relationship with our wife and our kids and our family and our church, and we move on in the gospel together. When's the last time you humbled yourself and repented of something? Finally, repentance is the responsibility of everyone. The whole city repents from the greatest to the least, verse 5. Even the king is not exempt. Indeed, his acts of humility exceed those of his people. He goes from the throne to taking off his royal robes, to putting on sackcloth, to doing something his people didn't do, to sitting on ashes from the throne to the ash heap with the hope that God might spare his city. The king shows us the humble hope of a repentant sinner. Let me tell you something this morning, North Roanoke. We are not ready to be delivered until we are willing even eager to face every humiliation necessary in order to be delivered. Where there is real humility, there is eternal hope. Where there is real humility toward a God that could have and should have consumed us, but for the fact He sent His Son, that's where we find hope. The king humbles himself with hope that God would turn from His anger, and in verse 10, we find these shocking words, and God did not do it. God spared Nineveh. North Roanoke Baptist Church, are we ready? Are we ready to see God do this in our day? Are we ready to see God overturn cities as we are a part of getting the gospel to them? We live in a world that needs to know that they can turn from sin and receive God's mercy because of Jesus. No matter how far they've gone, no matter how far they've fallen, no matter how wicked or vile they may be, there is a way that has been made through Christ. The mercy that the king hoped was available, perhaps God will save us, and apparently he never knows for sure because Jonah flees the scene, as we'll see next week. Perhaps, God, the mercy that he hopes is available, we know is available. Why? Because of what the King of Kings has done. You see, Jesus is the greater king of the greater city, that heavenly city. He's the king of kings who left his throne, set aside the privileges of his deity, wrapped himself not in sackcloth, but something more humiliating, in human flesh. And he went below the ashes. He didn't just sit on the ashes, he went below the ashes, down to the depths of the earth in death, knowing that God would spare the people of his city because he took our blame, he bore God's wrath for us, and he did the same for the untold billions to whom he is this day sending us. Are we ready? North Roanoke Baptist Church, to take this second chance that we've been given and to spend our lives for the advance of the gospel. 
our second chance is for the gospel's advance. Will you join us as we go in Jesus' name? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the promise of deliverance for the humble and repentant sinner. I pray, God, I pray, God, that you would help us to be a people who understand that your salvation is about so much more than just us individually. God, your salvation is about all nations. And ultimately, your salvation is about the worship and praise that is due your son. Lord, I don't, I don't know how you're working this morning. I don't know where people have come to this service from. I don't know what's going on in any individual life, but I do know. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you can save a rebellious and running prophet from the depths of the sea and bring him back to being on mission with you, that you can do anything. God, I, I know this morning that there's, there's probably parents who feel unworthy. There's probably spouses who feel like they should throw in the towel. There's, there's probably individuals dealing with addiction who, who feel like they just can't beat it. And God, the reality is they can't beat it, but they can look to you in all humility and they can find a power for living that comes from outside of themselves and it turns them over from being an enemy of God to a, a son or a daughter, a child of God. So, Father, as we sing this morning, I, I pray during this time of invitation that you would, you would draw men and women to yourself. For those who want to come and trust you, that they would do that. For those who want to be a part of a church that believes that you've given us a second chance to get the gospel even into enemy territory, that they would come and say, I want to be a part of a church like that. And God, there's some this morning that just realized, you know, I haven't actually repented of sin in a long time, and I just need to tell the Lord I'm sorry. I... I need to go get right with a brother or sister or my wife or daughter or son. So Lord, whatever you're doing in this service, I pray God that you would bring it to a divine and holy completion. For the glory of Christ we ask it. Amen.